I actually said something funny you this said time. Funny. You did I a funny. You did a funny. You did a funny. <laughs> Thank you for confirming that it happened. I'll probably never be able to replicate that like on the show. Civic Joe, a political conversation for all of us. Hello, Jody. It's been a while since we've talked. Hi, Emily. <laughs> You're so goofy. <laughs> since what, election night or maybe a few nights after election night was the last yeah. time we, we talked? for the podcast talk talk yeah we we talk we talk almost every day like via text and everything like that but um yeah the last time we recorded was the the live episode we did the friday or the saturday or whenever it was yeah the friday right before we got the official call that biden had run won the presidency that it was stolen from trump Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, nothing much has really changed since the last time we talked, at least in that. I mean, we went from like having these like wildly, like day to day, things would change so dramatically um, in the last couple of weeks before the general election to I think it's been a couple of weeks since we last recorded and we're kind of at a stalemate. I don't know. How long has it been? Has it only been a week? But basically, we're still in a stalemate, right? Like Biden's probably our next president. Trump's refusing to sort of acknowledge it and concede. That's pretty much it, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, everyone except for the Trump administration has acknowledged Joe Biden as the president-elect. I guess we don't actually have to wait for a Trump concession. I mean, I guess we can just (laughs) move on without him. So, you know, I I assume that that's what's going to happen. It's kind of a delicious kind of like revenge in a way, too, that like he's like nobody really cares what he I mean, like, I mean, people care what he has to say, but like. People are just kind of like, this is happening, whether you like it or not. And, you know, it's like a kid throwing a tantrum, you know, he's on the floor kicking and flailing. And we're just sort of like, you know what, whether you like it or not, this is the way it is, you right. know. Um, so it'll be right. interesting to see what happens on on January 20th. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens first. We've got December 5th, the um, the local runoff election for local um local issues and candidates. And then there's going to be a runoff in Georgia, which we're all like kind of paying attention to because that'll decide the fate of the Senate. Um, Everyone move to Georgia real quick. (laughs) (laughs) I think a lot of us are just sort of focusing on instead of moving to Georgia real quick, just sort of doing voter outreach um, to people in Georgia, trying to make sure everybody is informed and empowered. And then also YA authors are sort of like organizing, sort of self-organizing a campaign to reach out to teenagers who are 17 and about to turn 18 um, within the, the limit to register to vote. And so there's like, there could be this like core of like, you know, young voters who are just barely going to become eligible to vote in Georgia. And that may help turn the tide. And it'll be really interesting to see what happens, you know? And Andrew Yang and his wife are moving to Georgia to try <laughs> to spearhead this type of an effort, you know, so. Well, good for cool. them. What's interesting is, is how close this race is in Georgia. And it just goes to show that I think, like, there's been some real voter suppression happening in Georgia. I mean, all across the South. But um, we really need to do some reform, I think, especially around, like, if you're the Secretary of State and you're literally running an election, like, you know what I mean? Like you're in charge of an election as secretary of state. 
you probably should not, you should probably have to step down from that position in order to run for like governor or another, another race, you know, you, you would think that there'd be some type of conflict of interest there. <laughs> <But>. <laughs> Maybe just a little bit. Yeah. I mean, even if there isn't a conflict of interest, the appearance, the, the, the appearance of the potential for a conflict of interest is just so large. Anyways, um, we're actually here to talk about something else, the theme of this episode and, um, I wanted to uh, tell you a little bit about the guests that I interviewed for this episode. Elena and I go um, back a little ways because I saw their post on Facebook um, before I knew them. Um, I think I've spoken about this before with you because this was such like a transformative experience in my life. But mm -hmm. yeah, you have. It's kind of like coming out of the the matrix, but almost like in 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 progression, like not just like all at once, like in the movie, the matrix, like unplugging from the matrix in this sort of violent and sudden way. I mean, there were moments of that, but it's more like a, a subtle shift from like sort of like gradual right awakening, but I've been coming sort of more and more awake to different perspectives around indigenous issues in America and history and sort of like the founding myths of our country and like just starting to like, really like actually look at them and think about them and how we sort of, teach them to children, how we sort of like propagate them and celebrate them. Um, and I think I was already in the midst of that sort of awakening, if you will. Um, when I happened to see, um, Elena's, uh, post on Facebook about, um, um, for a tour, a tour guided, like a guided walk called the decolonized walks of Bobancha. And I'm like, Bobancha, what is Bobancha? And it was so weird because I, it's like, I had never heard that word before. And simultaneously, I also immediately knew it was the name for New Orleans. Hmm. I don't know how to describe it. It was like, it was both things simultaneously where I was like, never heard that word before. And then also like, that must be New Orleans. Um, and it is. It turns out that the native peoples in this area called the area Babancha before colonization. Um, and I saw the walk, you know, the the Facebook event, um, right around the same time that we were celebrating the tricentennial New Orleans. Um, so I think that also factors into this. Like the city was celebrating 300 years as a city. Um, and there wasn't a lot of programming about sort of indigenous cultures or any. Um, so they're celebrating essentially like colonization, but they're not talking about it. And, um, you know, we're all really excited and we're really proud of our very old city and, and all of those things. But then how often do we stop and think, well, there were people here before that. And what, what are we really celebrating here? We're celebrating 300 years, but like, what's the starting mark? Like, what's the starting point of 300 years? The starting point is somebody came here and planted a flag you know, um, and, and claim the land. That's the American way, you know, <laughs> that's the Western way. We like to tell our own stories. And like you said, our own founding myths, um, which generally don't include the people that have been, you know, massacred, genocided or right. um, oppressed. Um, but, I, I, and um, actually when we went to Vancouver, Marty and I, it was very different. Um, they embraced the indigenous people embrace the call, at least from what we could tell, obviously, you know, I, I don't live there. So, you know, and I, I didn't speak to any indigenous peoples up there, but just from an outsider's perspective, it looked like um, they were more or less embracing 
the indigenous peoples and aspects of the culture. And, you know, it was, it was interesting. I, I, you know, I, I don't think that we do that here. I mean, we, we have street names that are, you know, uh, uh, native that are, that are in some native language, but I think that's about the extent that, that we do it here, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I think that's a relatively new thing in Canada from what I've seen and heard. Um, it seems like it was a push by indigenous peoples um, within Canada to get recognition by the different governments of Canada. Um, you know, and that, there's, that makes, sense. <laughs> that, makes yeah. sense. that type of thing generally doesn't just happen on its own, you know. Right. But what's interesting about these decolonized walks of Babancha is they're not necessarily like an opposition. I think there was a, a moment where I was afraid that there, it always has to be an opposition, but um, Elena is a scholar and also as a, as a native person, as a, as an indigenous person um, is really well versed in, um, in uh, oral storytelling. And my first instinct because of who I am and maybe, you know, so many different factors with my background and my ancestors is to always look for the book on something. Like the book is the final word. Like the book is like the real truth. And I have to grapple with the fact that the written word is just, is, is more or less or the same true or untrue as the, as oral storytelling. If you think about it, you know, because the written word is, is whoever had the privilege and the power to capture a story from their perspective. Um, and oral, story, oral storytelling tends to be a little bit more collective. And so we treat it a lot of times like gossip, but it can be just as much, it can just be just as factual as, or more so. Yeah, history is written by the victors, um, is an adage that I've always heard. So, yeah, I mean, the people who don't get to tell their stories are usually the ones who lost whatever conflict <laughs> has, has occurred, <laughs> you know, so... Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting, this, this sort of reclaiming that I think we're trying to do now, because like, you know, I think the victors wrote the stories, published the books, told the story, you know, like, you know, decided on the myth that would be sort of taught, you know, for generations after them. But then somehow or another, the stories and the people that, you know, we thought we vanquished are, are still alive and they're pushing back and trying to tell their stories now. And I think that's really powerful. Um, but it's it's also interesting because that does that mean that that whatever war we thought that there was a victor in or whatever, you know, period of history, does, does that mean it's not over? That there's no, you know, like the final victor has not been decided yet? Or, or I don't know. I mean, or maybe we're just finally coming to a point where we're like, maybe we don't always have to think in opposition. Maybe we don't always have to think in... Um, the binary of win and lose and you know and, and maybe we can start to sort of collectively tell our story by listening to more perspectives and adding those in to the stories we already know all right well hey elena how are you hi i'm doing well how are you I'm all right. So I'm really excited that we're talking. It's been a little while. Yeah. It's been almost <laughs> so, a year, I think, since I've seen you. Uh, was it was it last year that we had that shared meal together? Yes. I mean, in <laughs> pandemic years, that was like 10 years ago. So yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> in pandemic time, yeah, it was a decade ago. So we haven't seen each other for a decade, and we are not seeing each other now, but I get to hear your voice, which is great. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about you? Like, who are you? So my name's Elena. Um, I am a educator that lives here in Bulbancha, a.k.a. New Orleans. Um, I grew up in southwest Louisiana. Uh, I've been here for just under a decade now um, in my ancestral homeland. Uh, I am an indigenous person. Uh, I use they, them pronouns, just a heads up. Um, And I kind of like describe my ethnicity. It's like an ever-changing description of what feels like, you know, the most inclusive definition, but I kind of use like Acadian Creole Métis um, of Ishak descent. I know you, um, it was kind of a coincidence, but a cup, not really a coincidence. I think it was just sort of like, um, fate kind of were meant to be. Um, I think it was the exact right time in my life to sort of have like an awakening or sort of like to have, like, I kind of think of it as almost like leaving the matrix, you know, where no information has necessarily changed, but just sort of like my entire perception of sort of like the world around me changed. And, and it's, it's really hard to describe, but what happened was, is on Facebook, I saw, um, did, you know, an advertisement for there's an event coming up called the decolonized walks of Babancha. And I was like, wait, what is this? What's Babancha? I, I signed up for the, for the walk and I like, met you know the group and then the rest of the walk was just mind-blowing it felt like immediately well it felt like immediately like walking with friends like and I didn't know a single person on that walk before and by the end of it I was just like wow I just got invited into a community and got invited to learn like a lot of new information and yeah anyway so that's how I'm like smiling so much thank you (laughs) I've been smiling too. Um, I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but yeah, well, you're, I don't know. I don't know if you want to talk at all before we we get into the questions that I ask everybody about the walk, uh, decolonized walks of Babancha and why you started them. Sure. Yeah, I haven't really been doing them too much in 2020 because you know pandemic. Um, but basically, they were something that I started doing a little over two years ago, um, just to kind of like bring awareness to the indigenous history of. Um, New Orleans and just to kind of like Louisiana in general, um, you know, and also a lot of it was just like a really personal journey, um, kind of my own like personal journey of like really decolonizing within myself and like getting in touch ancestrally um, with myself and the land I live on um, and just also kind of like weaving together my like family history and my family stories in with you know the more like formal history of the space it's you know it's more important than ever now that we like have these stories um and try to like recenter really how much of new orleans and how much of like creole and like cajun culture is so inherently indigenous um i think that's really it's important to do and i felt like it was just really like the right time to kind of like confront that you know like colonial founding myth you know it was really interesting because I think I remember at one point you we were um where were we we were sort of near the back end of the walk and we were about to go to um the park you were talking about how um you'd had to use the like the official records like you had to come through official records in order to sort of like find out some information and like you were layering that over also like oral traditions um and like 
again, especially as a writer, like somebody who's like always like really loved books and kind of like, you know, I, I find myself still doing this, like as someone who loves books, sort of holding like something that's in a, a written record or published as almost like a more authentic or more um, true or accurate thing than, than something I hear versus like, you know, like, 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 oh, this is hearsay or gossip potentially. And, um, and then you, you kind of reframed that for me too, where it was kind of like, well, no, because like, you know, books and written formats are just as potentially flawed as anything else, because it's really about the person's perspective and who has access to committing something to like the historical record. And then, um, you know, narrative traditions and oral traditions, um, can be just as accurate. I mean, yes, like we have that sort of like stereotype of like, oh, they played telephone and some, and the meaning of something changed over time. But like oral traditions tend to be like, um, you know, something that like is passed down intentionally. It's not just like, okay, let's let the meaning get loosey goosey necessarily, you know, necessarily like people do add and change to it, but you know. Right. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's, you know, and well, especially like when your whole culture, you know, like especially nations in this area, there weren't a lot of written languages. There really weren't any in this region. Um, and so in your whole culture, it depends on you like transmitting that information orally, like you get really good at it. You know, there's traditions and ceremonies and there's methods of like, um, you know, giving that information in a repetitive way that um, you get very good at it. <laughs> you know, like my example that I give, like my modern day example is like, you know, um, because I grew up with just, like, a lot of stories and a lot of songs and being able to, like, memorize these things. Um, and so, like, my memory for recall for oral information is really good. And when I taught high school, I would have 200 students. And three days in, I would know all 200 students' names. Wow. Um, and it, it's, like, when you're – when you have a culture that centers around recalling information in that way, like, it – I mean, it's been scientifically proven, your brain will, you know, remember those things a whole lot better. Mm-hmm. And that's why we have like rhyming and like, you know, narr- like um, epic poems and things exactly. like that. Like, yeah. Cause that was the main form of like, you know, there would be traveling storytellers who would, you know, entertain, but also pass on information. So I should say that the meal that we shared together um, last year, which I can't believe it was last year, but um that was on Thanksgiving, like the national holiday of Thanksgiving. Being invited to your home to have that shared meal, it was like, it didn't fix anything, but it was also like, you know, I, I can maybe hold on to this part <laughs> of what this holiday is and and still investigate those other things as well. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of, I had, you know, talked about this probably about two years ago with a friend. Um I actually met at Standing Rock and you know just about this idea of like I you know I didn't like Thanksgiving growing up for a whole lot of reasons and uh I mean I still don't I don't like the you know like the whitewash narrative around Thanksgiving you know this idea that like the pilgrims and the Indians and they got together and lived happily ever after in America uh but it's you know but like you know you can like there is nothing more traditional than sharing a meal together um, and being in community together. And, you know, this time of year is, is, is harvest season. It's traditionally a time where you would be feasting and coming together and being grateful, um, you know, for the abundance that you have 
Um, but it's a way of, you know, like reframing it to actually get back to the more like traditional roots of like celebrating abundance. Um, but without having this like, you know, horrific white supremacist colonial, uh, narrative that's also just completely inaccurate. Um, and also just kind of using this time, I think, to not only to like reframe that and to like address that and address it head on in a way that really talks about the ways that we can actually do better um, by indigenous peoples and indigenous communities. Um, I think that's a much more appropriate way to kind of handle this time of year that traditionally uh, we've used to celebrate uh, something very violent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, thank you for saying that. Um, okay. So let's, let's ask the questions before I get too much into the, into all these other amazing things we yeah. talk about, because we could literally talk about stuff forever, for all of this. Um, and I'm so grateful to you as, as someone I can like talk about all of this with, because that's amazing well, to have, you. um, access to. Um, and so the first question that I usually ask everybody, um, is, uh, what do you remember about learning civics and, uh, like, did you learn in school or uh-huh. was it more like, <laughs> sorry, I, I feel no. like this question is a violence. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's, it's more of just like, yeah, the learning about civics. Um, I had a, well, so I was, I mean, until really like this past year, I was, at, I taught high school um social studies Uh, I never taught civics but I did teach geography and um world history for a long time and so but my kind of inspiration for that was because I had such a terrible social studies experience growing up I, I remember my high school civics teacher's name he was a coach I think and he also taught me biology I don't remember anything about the only thing I remember about taking civics class. We didn't, we didn't honestly learn anything. I honestly don't remember learning anything uh, about civics in high school. In all honesty, I feel like mostly what I learned, I did have a grandfather who um, was a school bus driver and electrician for a while, but in his like older age, got into like parish politics hmm. um, and eventually became one of the oldest, I think the oldest parish president in Louisiana. Uh, wow. <laughs> and so I learned a lot more about like politics at like the local level. I definitely self-taught <laughs> sort of thing. Did not, yeah. did not get it in school, not in Louisiana school system now. <laughs> well, one of my follow-ups is usually like, um, did you think that your civics education prepared you be to like to be a citizen, like really fully prepared you? And it sounds like that's a no from like the Louisiana schools. Absolutely not. Was there no? Um, I do feel though, as a having taught in schools more recently, I feel like for the most part, if there's a better job being done of that, um. I think every school I've taught in has moved civics to like the 12th grade. So like, you know, when kids are preparing to vote. Mm. That's great. I mean, that's great to hear that at least they're, they're trying to do better. So was there, um, you said you self-taught. So like, what did you, what do you think you, you did or what sources did you seek out to like learn more about, about civics and how to be a citizen? I mean, so it's, it's dramatically changed over time. Um, I, 
I feel like I've almost done a complete 180 in that <laughs> regard. Um, so initially it was, you know, like a lot of reading. College was somewhat influential. But then especially like as I got further on my decolonization journey, my like views about like civics and particularly like voting have changed really dramatically um, to the point now that like I don't vote on principle. So it's just done a a complete 180. And I think probably the most influential like piece I can think to recommend would be um, the Indigenous Action Network. Actually, they have an amazing podcast that just started coming out that I can't recommend enough for folks, especially like if you're just starting to learn. Um, But they actually did a whole, they also did like a zine to accompany it called Voting is Not Harm Reduction. That really talks about kind of the issues around, um, especially in terms of like national elections, uh, you know, like kind of the issue of perpetuating like settler colonialism via voting. And that's probably been one of the most like influential pieces on me personally. Oh, wow. Uh, I don't know if you heard the episodes where we were breaking down our local, ba- you know, like our ballots on me and Jadi, but like, this was a really interesting one for, because I think for maybe the first time in my my life ever, we had multiple Democratic candidates for lots of the, the jobs. And so right. it couldn't just be like, you know, and, and we kind of joked about like in the past, if I'd had like two Democrats to pick between, I would usually pick the woman if there was a woman. Right. <laughs> so like. <laughs> definitely been there. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. What was that? Say that again? I said I've definitely been there. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I mean, if we're honest with each, with ourselves and with each other, we have to say yeah. But at the same time, like in looking at it now, it seems silly to just like yeah. Maybe nine times out of ten, the Democrats can be better than Republican for what I want, and nine times out of ten, the female candidates can be better than the male candidate for what I want. Not like a lot of the right. times, but not all of the times, and. You know, and definitely like, you know, women, white women can participate in white supremacy and and, um, and misogyny, of course. So what I wonder is, is my co-host Noelle's question. She asks people, and I love this question, what do you think it takes to be a good citizen? And a lot of people, the first answer is voting. What, what do you think it takes to be a good citizen? I think it takes community care, um, you know, mm-hmm. and like we've seen a lot about this like concept of like mutual aid. But it's come up a lot, particularly like uh, with the pandemic and also like around this like most recent election. Um, and, and, you know, this is also not to say like that there aren't, especially when it comes to like local elections, there are like much more tangible impacts on that level. Um, and like, I'm not going to ever like shame anyone for voting by any means, um, especially like white folks, I think, have like much more of an obligation in that regard. Um, but I, you know, I do think like community care and mutual aid is a much more important part of being a good citizen. Being in relation with one another is a much more important part of being a good citizen to me. Being in relation with the earth, being in relation with other people, being in relation even with like non-human relatives, I think is much more a part for me of being a good citizen. Um, you know, and even when you're thinking about like in terms of like the current like settler colonial government that's occupying this land um when you look at like really wanting to change those structures community care mutual aid is you know is vital to that um because if you want to change the system the biggest threat to the system is to not meet them and to operate outside of that um and that's just very much how i grew up 
that's very much like how I think a lot of like uh, poor and folks grow up, a lot of like brown folks grow up, uh, you know, is when you're kind of someone who grew up in marginalized communities where you're often overlooked, um, that is crucial to being able to exist and survive. And I think that's also really crucial for kind of confronting the colonial system as well wrote an essay about it at the beginning of the pandemic in a book called Pandemic Solidarity Mm. um, that was put out by Pluto Press, I believe. I think Rebecca Solnit uh, was one of the main authors attached to it. Um, But yeah, just this idea of like that we can come together and kind of operate outside of these systems is really important to me. That's beautiful. I mean, it's very much about being a part of like a living culture um, and well, especially like with adoption, I, you know, cause I'm not from and like a federally recognized nation. Um, but I coincidentally, because South Louisiana, I accidentally got adopted by my cousins. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, everyone thought it was so strange how much I looked like my, my dad whenever I was adopted. Uh, it turns out we we're like third cousins. But which I don't know how much more like Indian country you can get than that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I was like, hmm. Uh, but, you know, and it is this, like, thing of, it's about being a part of a culture. Um, and so, like, well, and that was, like, something, especially with, like, growing up was, I definitely grew up with, like, storytelling and sort of understanding that I was from this blended culture, but it was sort of whitewashed because, like, you know, uh, three of my four grandparents were sent to schools where they were forced to speak English. Um and just this like trauma and like this hiding of things. And so like I did for a long time grow up, like not really sure, like, uh, am I really native? Can I be native enough? Like, um, you know, like what, you know, what is, what does that mean? Um, and it wasn't really until I was like in college and I was taking sort of like this class and they were talking a lot about like quote unquote, like Cajun studies, which kind of a whole nother rabbit hole to go down but you know and it was like and especially like learning what like I had learned from like my grandmothers especially and my grandfather uh and listening to like you know the professor try to like attribute a lot of these things to European culture and me sitting there and just being like well, that's not what I understood growing up you know like <laughs> um and then finally just having this like connection that like so much of what I grew up with was was so native inherently still so native and it was always this thing of like well we weren't really white but now we're white but don't talk about it too much you know this like passe blanc sort of thing um and it just yeah it's this it's an incredibly complex subject and been something like I've really tried to like address you know like internally and externally um and that's so much of like of like I said, like South Louisiana's culture is even Creole culture, um, especially is so heavily like native influenced and obviously like African influenced as well. Um, but the native, because native erasure is such a thing, has just been sort of taken out of that. And it's like everyone's sort of, especially if you're a part of those cultures, you know, because you grow up being told like, well, like that's what it is, but like don't don't talk about it too much. Uh, <laughs> And you're kind of failing at that, by the way, the not talking about it. I know. You're here talking with me about it. Spectacularly. 
Um, you know, and it was just like, and that's that, you know, that especially that's like such a product of like the removal period, you know, of like, mm -hmm. and, and the shame, you know, like the, a lot of culture was lost just between like my parents, uh, my grandparents, my parents' generation. Um, so much like language was lost because they didn't want to, you know, pass on the shame that they had from growing up and being sent to these schools. And then sort of when I came around, it was just a very different, I think there was a realization that like, oh no, <laughs> this might really be lost. Um, and I spent a lot of time with my grandparents growing up. I was very fortunate. And so a lot of those like stories wound up getting passed down to me. Um, and just was like, I was so like fortunate to have that. Like I grew up going to tr traditional healers um, because of my grandparents, my mom wouldn't take me cause she thought it was, you know, she thought it was too backwards and now she wants me to become one. I, <laughs> we've come full circle. I mean, she's so it's, you know, I grew up with like, with sort of that shame that definitely like got handed down uh, and has been really difficult to undo, but also at the same time, like uh, my parents are also just really happy that I'm finally like doing this now and like pushing back against this, like, you know, whitewash narrative of a lot of Louisiana culture. Like I also very much try to like acknowledge all of like my ancestry. Like that's why it's kind of like this ever changing, like trying to figure out like an, the most accurate description uh, of myself. Like, you know, I have this like Acadian ancestry that's very much like, uh, you know, like mixed, like French Mi'kmaq Penobscot ancestry. We came down here mixed in with, you know, native groups from here. Spanish, a lot of Spanish ancestry on my dad's side, quite a bit of African ancestry. Um, just, yeah, just being a total, a total blending of cultures and trying to really like sit with and acknowledge all aspects of that. Um, it, it can be incredibly complicated. Hmm. I found myself tearing up a little bit when you said you got to spend time with your, your grandparents and, and the stories got passed on to you. And I, I found myself feeling very grateful because, um, because you've been so generous in sharing them. I'm sorry. I'm like tearing up here. Um, no, no, it's okay. I, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> um, not, not having like, I mean, you know, like not to get too deep into to my family stuff, but you know, kind of knowing, um, like I've, I'm also lucky to have, a grandmother who just turned 95 this year, but also except for her, there's just a lot of mystery around sort of my ancestry and, and who my ancestors were and are. And, um, you know, and, and I think that that's like an unacknowledged pain, probably a, a lot of white folks feel. Um, maybe they don't realize it. Maybe they don't slow down long enough to look at it um, because it's terrifying. It's painful, you know, to be like, you know, we, we got to look at like who our ancestors were and we got to try to know them. Um, and that's going to be painful because there's a lot of, you know, stuff there, you know, um, that we no, probably absolutely. rather not see. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really, yeah, I definitely, it's, it's very difficult. Um, I totally, yeah, it's, it's yeah, even just like within my family, I've seen how much because there's so well, there's so much color variance in my family, um, like dramatically, <laughs> with even just like a generation like, uh, like my bio mother is much darker than me, uh, as is her entire side of the family, um, so even just like seeing like how that like interplays and like 
the different sorts of privileges I have. Um, it's very, yeah, it's just such a complicated thing. And like trying to acknowledge like my white passing privilege, trying to acknowledge that like half my family doesn't have that and how that kind of like plays out within our interpersonal relationships. It, it, yeah, it gets very complicated. And I think, I think white folks and even white passing folks in, in general, um, there's a lot of work to be done, you know, in that. Yeah. Yeah. I also will say one more, sorry, one more story about my, which I feel like I have to mention because I feel like you'd appreciate it. I, my, so my grandmother, my dad's mother, who, when I was adopted, again, this is before we knew that I was actually related to this woman. Uh, but she, um, my parents had been trying to have a child for over a decade by the time I was adopted out of foster care. Um, and she was kind of the storyteller of the family uh, the like record keeper, everything was really like very matrilineal. My dad was the middle child. And so she was like, all right, I'm going to pass down a lot of stuff to you. She had a ton of grandkids. She had multiple granddaughters by the time I was born, but I, it was something about, you know, like particularly like how, she, because she'd passed down so much, I think to my father, but she told him the day I came home from foster care that she felt like she could, she could die now because she was like ready to go on now that she knew he had you know this child that would carry down these traditions um and sure enough we didn't know but at the time she had developed ALS we didn't find out for like another year or two um and so it was sort of like the beginning of the end um and she was probably like very influential on me um and before she passed away she told me she'd always come back to us through like monarch butterflies um they were sort of her symbol and every single walk I have ever done, <laughs> when I end in Congress Square, I see a monarch. Like, every every time. And I remember, like, when I first started seeing the monarchs at Congress Square every single time, I was like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, yeah. This is this is right. Uh, and sure, and, like, my parents were just so, my parents also very much felt it. And it just, yeah, I remember, like, thinking that was, like, uh sort of just a sign and things in my like life just really started like rapidly changing around that time as well. And um, it just, yeah, it, things felt so right. Ancestrally speaking with doing those walks, it was amazing. I do love that story. And I, I feel like, I feel like you said something out about a butterfly at the end of the thing, uh, at the end of the walk, like, but I don't like initially, but I just be like, Oh, Hey, like every time one would fly by. <laughs> That is wonderful. Well, I'm glad that you have her blessing and that um that she's she's visiting because, like, yeah, that's that's a wonderful gift. Well, thank you for talking with me today. Thank you for having me. This is so exciting. Yes, I'm I'm very excited about this and um, look forward to talking to you and seeing you in the nearest future. Maybe you know, not ten years from now. Hopefully not a year from now, but maybe right. soon ish. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Awesome. All right. Have a good one, okay? Thanks. You too. All right. Bye. I've been reading a bunch of kids' books, and it's been taking me a while because there's a lot of other stuff going on. But I'm, re I'm reading this one that I'm almost done with called History Smashers The Mayflower by Kate Mesner. So before the the sort of like the Mayflower lands and like that sort of founding myth of, of America, of our, you know, the beginning of America, there were already, you know, Europeans here. 
coexisting alongside the native nations, um, more or less, you know, um, but because they were outnumbered by the native nations, they weren't there to like colonize and take over necessarily. They were just, they were just there to like exist in the space, but there were already like Europeans that knew languages there. There were already Europeans that were spreading illnesses that the native populations hadn't encountered yet. And there was a major epidemic in the area right before the Mayflower landed. And our whole history might've been really, really different if that that village that was close to where they landed had been populated when they landed. Yeah, I was trying to think how we were going to segue into the Constitution. I mean, this being a civics podcast and all, it'd be irresponsible if we didn't at least touch on that. <laughs> Great segue. <laughs> <laughs> Always got to get back to the to the Constitution. <laughs> Uh, so, no, just looking at the Constitution, uh, Native Americans are really only mentioned three times, and it mostly has to do with taxation, um, uh, not uh, not directly being able to tax uh, Native Americans uh, as they are viewed as a, a foreign power, a foreign um, entity, not, not U.S. citizens. Um, so it's, uh, you know, and then Congress has the power to um, regulate commerce with Native Americans. In uh, Article 1, Section 8, it says that uh, Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. So mm-hmm. um, it gives Congress the power to um, essentially trade, barter, whatever with um, Native Americans, make decisions for the u.s um in relation to native americans but that's that's pretty much it um there isn't um any real policy i mean i guess that's policy but there's no no other real policy um regarding native americans and it seems clear that native americans were not part of the united states were not um a part of the constitution Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, it's really interesting. I remember kind of learning this in school about like Rome, like I think of, I think of sort of like native nations within the United States, almost as sort of like the inverse of like, the Vatican and Rome, um, in that like the Vatican is supposed to be like its own sort of like city state, mm-hmm. um, and governs itself. So it's not like, and also kind of like DC, right? Like DC is like, not as is not a, uh, a state, it's not a part of a state. It, it's a city that's sort of outside of any like larger, like, you know, ruling sort of, you know, geographic sort of concept. Right. right? Um, and so like Rome is like, you know, I mean, the Vatican is like wholly sort of self-governing within Rome. Um, and then like DC is not self-governing, but it's not, it's not contained it's contained with the United States, but it's not contained within a state or it's, you know, it's not contained. Yeah. And so then I think of, I always really struggled with this concept when I was a kid, like how you could physically be within a country, but not be subject to the rule of that country, but also not be sort of like protected by the rule of that country. And I think that that's been kind of a a very problematic thing this entire time because the whole time, you know, the United States has been sort of building itself and founding itself. It essentially, you know, 
came to a place, said, we don't recognize your rule over us, even though we're in your homeland or, you know, your, your countries, you know, we're, we're in the geographic space that you exist within. We're not subject to you. And, and then like, you know, after we slaughtered a whole bunch of them, then we're like, okay, you're not subject to us because you don't have the same, the rights and privileges as a citizen but you are subject to us in that we don't recognize your sort of like humanity and ability to sort of self-govern, you know? Well, with the idea of westward expansion, uh, it would be more convenient for the U.S. to not have Native Americans as citizens because citizens have rights and rights that need mm -hmm. to be respected, whereas um, Native Native tribes, Native nations um, – when we made treaties with them and then subsequently abandoned those treaties, ignored those treaties, we could just say, ah, well, you know, whatever. And there's no authority to really enforce it, you know? I know, right? Right. And it gets, it's really fascinating and it's sad. Um, but, and it's also like, it's hard to untangle like the debt that we owe to the indigenous people and like how we should move forward as a country and honor them and sort of also like, you know, but I think, I think it takes, I think it takes some doing. I don't think we can, I don't think we can celebrate any more centennials without, without really acknowledging the people that were here before us that still have descendants here that are, that are nurturing like the, the oral traditions and the languages trying to keep those languages alive. So do, do you celebrate Thanksgiving or will you celebrate Thanksgiving moving forward? Has, has this epiphany changed your idea of Thanksgiving? Well, it really has. And that's kind of where we sort of started this project was we talked about that. And, um, I try to just really focus on like how ancient the tradition of like sharing meals together, breaking bread together and bringing together both people you love and, and strangers sometimes to share these meals and to learn more about them and to like spend more time with, you know, people that you know and love. Um, I, I feel like I can recognize um, what happened to the Native Americans and at the same time, enjoy the time off that I'm given <laughs> to spend time with my family and eat delicious foods. This is coming from the History Smashers Mayflower book, but they had a, a chapter about Thanksgiving and the pilgrims did observe days of Thanksgiving, but they weren't celebrations or feasts. They were days spent in prayer, giving thanks for something important. Well, I like the religious aspect of Thanksgiving, and I've kept that in my practice of, of the holiday. So, as you know, I pray to the God of football, <laughs> and, <laughs> and every Thanksgiving, we have, <laughs> we have holy meetings between the Detroit Lions <laughs> and some team, and the Dallas Cowboys and some team, you know, and these are holy events that are sacred to my people and my religion. I'm so you know? sorry. I shouldn't be so. laughing at your religious practices. That's, that's really inappropriate of me. <laughs> Even so, if I know, find it like absolutely absurd, I should not laugh at your religion. It's a holy day, you know? It's a holy day for us. So. 